experiments are either simplified suggestion of a complex mental process. But you get the idea. You get the idea. Good morning. How are you? Welcome to Desbury's Community Church. I'm Pastor Scott. I get the wonderful and intimidating task of teaching today on the subject of, and you have to grit your teeth, anger. So we're glad you're here. We're going to, uh, we're teaching on anger. It's called Casualties of War. We're going to be going through mainly James chapter 4, 1 through 12. And we're in the middle of our, we're in the second week of our emotion series. We're going to go for six weeks. And I, so this is one of those teachings, anger. It's kind of a, hey, you're reading my mail message, but just to let you know, this is bulk mail. We all, we all get this one. So the thesis statement of our teaching series is we are emotional beings created in the image of an emotional God. And there are no bad emotions, but because of the fall, there are emotions gone bad. Who in here has ever taken an IQ test? Like, you know what your IQ is? What's an IQ? Did you, know that <laughs> Did you know that you have an emotional IQ? Did you know that there was something in, uh, called emotional intelligence? Emotional intelligence is being aware of your feelings and interpreting them correctly, and being aware of and interpreting the feelings of others correctly the ability to bring calm to yourself and to emotional situations, and the ability to redirect negative emotions in a productive way. How's it going for you? I know I struggle with that. So here's my challenge to you. There's some search information. It's on your notes. It's at the bottom of the screen up there. I want you to get with someone this next week who knows you really well, and I want you to both search the uh, quick IQ test and take that, make your notes, tally the scores, and then talk about it. But do it with someone that knows you really well. Maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's your spouse. If you need marital counseling after that, just call the church office. <laughs> we'll hook you up. But you're going to learn something. You're going to learn how you're emotionally wild and, and how much emotional intelligence do you have. How many of you guys had one of those classes like they showed on the bumper video, Emotions? class. I didn't have one of those. So where do we learn our emotions? We learn our emotions from the place that we're most vulnerable and we have the most need. And usually that's at home. Sometimes it's at school and we don't learn emotions very well there. We know that. But in, in, at home, you know, maybe you came from a good home. Maybe you come from a bad home. But what did, what did anger look like in your home? How was it taught to you? How did you learn to be angry? How did you learn sadness? How did you learn happiness? How did you learn love? We learn our emotions in the places where we're most vulnerable and have the most need. And so sometimes we learn to do it the wrong way, but sometimes we learn, as, as uh, Darren spoke about last week, stoicism, emotionless. Sometimes you learn to stuff your emotions at home because we just don't do that. And maybe it's even in a Christian home and there's a Christian spin put on it that Christians aren't supposed to be angry. Well, that is wrong. And it's bad theology. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry. Pretty sure it's not a typo. Be angry, but don't sin in your anger. So we learn our emotions, and we grow old, but do we grow wiser? Do we grow up into be the fullness of Christ, as it says in Ephesians? Because if we don't, when emotions grow, go bad, then immature, untamed emotions will cause us to be tossed to and fro by the waves and the winds of every doctrine. I think emotional intelligence is one of our most lacking skills that we have. 
And it's also evidence when we look around us at the emotional intelligence and brokenness of other people that when we look inside also, we need help. We are broken people in need of a Savior, aren't we? So let's pray to him and ask him for his help today. Lord God, we are in awe of your greatness and your goodness. God, I don't think we take time daily to fully grasp what it means to be truly created in your image. And we confess that we certainly don't look at our sin with sober enough eyes, the sin in us and the sin around us. And so, God, we pray for you to open our blind eyes today as we look soberly at our anger. Help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, looking to Christ as our Lord and Savior. Help us to remember that you sent your son into this fallen, angry world to quench your righteous anger as, as Phil prayed. And we, we deserve that, that wrath. But at that moment, and moment by no moment, because of Christ, there is inexhaustible grace, undeserved favor. So God, give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that would teach us how to live that life that you have given us not as those still in debt, but as those whom you have paid our debt in full and promise us through Christ to make us clean from all our uncleanness, to cleanse us from all of our idols, to give us a new heart and a new spirit. God, by that spirit, by your spirit, we ask you to renew our hearts and our minds and help us to realize that man's anger is our doom, but your righteous anger is the hope of the universe. And it's in Jesus' precious and all-powerful name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So I titled this teaching Casualties of War because man-centered anger, it, it destroys us. It destroys us from the inside out. It destroys other people around us. It destroys relationship. It destroys whole societies. But you have to remember that anger does not start with what we see on the news. In those big flamboyant flaming moments of anger, it starts in the individual's heart. And so I want to look at us as individuals. I want to first define anger, and I learned this from Dr. Tim Keller, uh, but also apply it to a particular situation that I'll I'll, uh, share with you. So the definition of anger is energy released against something evil to protect something that is good. Let me say it again. Energy released against something evil to protect something is good. So let's talk about uh, an occasion of anger. I'll get a little sarcastic here just to make my point. Say that you have just worked hard all week, all year. You haven't had a break. You haven't had a vacation. You're getting burned out. But later on at the end of the week, you see see a glimmer of hope. You see a little, little window of time that you could have for some me time. There's a game on that you really wanna watch or a movie or you wanna binge watch Netflix or whatever it is. And you're just seeing, you're envisioning this. You're going you're gonna to get to relax. You get your chair or your chaise lounge. You're going to pop your popcorn and get the biggest glass in the house that fits two soda, two sodas, right? And you work hard to, to achieve that moment. And so you work hard all week at work. You don't leave anything undone on your desk. You get home. You make sure the trash is out. The lawn is mowed. The, the, the dog poop is picked up. The kids and the wife, they, and, or maybe it's your, just your spouse, your, your husband or your wife and your kids, you, they know that this is going to be your time. You are intentionally carving out this time just 
for you. You can be in the room, but shut up. <laughs> the remote is mine, the TV is mine, and I am not to be disturbed. You lay down the law, okay? So the moment comes. You pop the popcorn, you butter it just right, just enough salt, not too much, not too little. You get your soda, you snuggle into the remote, maybe you get a little, little, uh, little blanket to cozy up with a little bit if it get, turn the air conditioner up really cold or down really cold. Yeah. And you start watching your show or your game or whatever it is, and you're enjoying it. You're in the moment. You're, you're getting what you wanted. And then the phone rings. And the phone rings again. And the phone rings again. Honey! You got to pause. Honey, can you get that? So she gets that. <sighs> Take a deep breath. Grab another handful of popcorn. Hit the play button. It's, it's going now. You're enjoying the moment. You start hearing a little bickering down the hallway in the kids' room. And the bickering turns into yelling and screaming, and the yelling and screaming turns into furniture hitting the walls, and then you hear a crash, right? And you, the temperature immediately goes up. Anger is yours. And so you try and kick down that recliner, and it doesn't go down the way you want it to, and so you kick it again, and you get up, and you spill the popcorn, and the dog's eating it, and you're just frustrated and irritated, and you're stomping down the hallway. And with every third step, that, that, th th there's a phrase that someone is going to get it. Someone is going to pay. And you get to the kid's door, and it's silent by this time, but you open the door without even using the door now. Bang! What is going on in here? Well, he touched me. No, he touched me first. Enough! Why aren't you guys doing what you were told to do? And the bickering starts again. Stop! Who broke the lamp? I didn't do it. Nobody did it. Right? Right. The dog did it. No, the dog wasn't in there because he was eating your popcorn. And so you, you just go off on a tangent. Why can't I have kids that are from this planet that have a clue of how to follow directions? What is wrong with you? And you just go off and you say all kinds of mean things to your kids and, and it works for a second and, and they're, you know, so clean it up and go to bed. I don't want to hear another peep. Boom, you slam the door, you're off and down the hallway. But before you get to the end of the hallway, you feel horrible. You've just hurt their little hearts. And so in moments like this, we need to minimize the casualties of war and learn to do something. We need to learn how to comb out our anger, get out the nasty snarls and snags and matting and ugliness and comb it out. And that involves some things. It involves identify, evaluate, redirect, repent, and worship. So let's walk through that in this situation. So what was the, what was the parent attacking, treating it as evil? The kids. Aren't the kids good? Yes. They're your invitation into God's creation, and he's helped you. You see how he feels sometimes? <laughs> but you're treating them evil, and treating, what you were treating as good was your little time of peace, your, your little sanctimonious uh, TV show or game, and you just feel horrible now. So what you need to do is turn and go the other way. You need to repent. 
You need to repent of your misguided anger towards what was good and go in there and, and say, kids, I screwed up. I am so sorry. I said mean things to you that I don't actually believe. I love you. So will you please forgive me? And one comes out from under the bed and the other one from out of the closet. <laughs> okay, Dad. But then you say, but I, I am, I am angry at what you did. And I'm angry because I love you and I want you to be better. I want you to have a good life later on because if you grow up and you're destructive and you lie and you're disobedient, life is not gonna go well for you. So you repent, repent and you redirect your anger towards what is actually evil for the good of those that are good in your life. And when you do that, you can take time to worship and thank God for his spirit that he gives you to actually know the difference between right and wrong and to go back and make it right and to be good and angry and redirect to make yourself whole, but not only that, but your kids whole. It's a really easy process. Not. <laughs> it's hard. The temperature changes just like that in our anger uh, because of what's going on in our heart. Um, it's, it's messed up. And so we have to practice it over and over and over. And the only way to do that in a constant way is to remember what Christ suffered for us. In Ephesians, I said, Ephesians 4, 26, it says, be angry, but do not sin. But later on in 31 through 32, it says to put off all bitterness and, and rage and, and anger and to put on kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness just as Christ forgave you. So that's the only remedy to those instances. But don't beat yourself up if you don't get it because it has to be practiced over and over and over again. And along with every other emotion, anger does not just happen. Your anger is attached to something inside of you. Your expression of anger, your release of this energy is something that was already there in the first place. That makes sense because you've heard it before that anger is a secondary emotion, right? We're going to be reading James chapter 4, and it tells us that. It shows what it's secondary to. Three things that it shows that it's secondary to is, first, it's warring desires. These are our passions in our heart. These are what pleasures us. They're feel-good things. They're not necessarily bad things. They can be, but they're not necessarily bad things. But if you can't live at peace without them, they're going to end up ruling your heart. And when they rule your heart, as James says, we're going to be double-minded and we're going to do bad things with our passions. Anger is also secondary to blocked goals. Sometimes when we set up this kingdom in our heart that we want to rule over, we have a selfish need to rule. And we play king of the hill all the time with everybody in us, in our family, around us, at work, and in society and things. And we do this Game of Thrones thing where we're either trying to establish our throne or we're trying to get back that throne that's been taken from us, or if we can't take the throne, we're going to rebel against the throne. And so anger is secondary to blocked goals. Anger is also secondary to anything that disrupts our kingdom rule because the kingdom of our hearts is in play. And when anger is not, you have to understand, anger is not always and actually less 
the more it's not always these big flaming moments like I described sarcastically just a moment ago. Most of our anger is lived out in little mundane annoyances and frustrations of our day-to-day lives, but they say something about the big anger that's going on inside of us. So we're going to read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. A little backstory. James is Jesus' brother. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's writing them a letter to these Jewish Christians living outside of Palestine, and his purpose was to encourage them to live out their faith as doers, not just hearers. They're suffering persecution. They're living in poverty. There's social and spiritual conflict, and many of these believers were living in a worldly manner. It cracks me up when people say, well, God's word is not relevant to us today. That's old stuff. I'm pretty sure I just described our society today. And so this letter is not only to that church, but it's to this church too. It's to our world around us. So James is correcting them and challenging them to seek out God's wisdom to work out that these problems that they're having. So let's read. I'll explain as I go along. What, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's those pleasures that I was talking about. And it's an internal thing. Another, another uh, translation says they're at war within your members. It's an internal thing, and we'll talk about that. It says you desire and do not have, so you murder. Casualties of war. You covet and can obtain, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Casualties of war. You ask and do not receive, but you, uh, <clears throat> you do not ask because, or excuse me, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your passions. It's an it's, it's a, it's a all about you kind of thing. It says you adulterous people. Notice it's all inclusive. He's not just talking to one individual. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world, huge point here, makes himself an enemy of God. Sometimes when we think life isn't going our way and we don't have those things that we've put on the throne of our heart, we shake our fists at God, we shake our fists at the world. But what we're doing is we've placed those things on our hearts. We're making ourselves an enemy of God when he has the best life that we could ever hope for. And it's all his anyways, right? He gives it to us. When you take something and give it, don't give it back, it's called stealing. So we're enemies of God in that regard. It says, or do you suppose it is, uh, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us There he is, the emotional God. He's a jealous God. Jealous is kind of his his wrath kind of held back. What does that mean? It means he's given us everything. He's given us life. He's given us his son. But we've taken, we're, 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 we're choosing things of the world. So he's he's given us the bride of Christ life and everything that we have, but we're choosing another. That's why he calls us adulterous people. What's his response to us? But he gives more grace. That is amazing. Do we get that? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
God opposes the proud. That's a loving response. We ought to be in opposition of pride. Not only in us, but around us. But there's a particular way to do that. Submit yourself, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. The answer to the enemy's attack in your life is not beating up the enemy. It's submitting to God. It's giving yourself to God, and that looks like a particular thing. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When we choose God and something else, we're double-minded. Here's what it looks like to submit yourself to God. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Do we really consider our sin and our idolatry enough to the point that it makes us mourn and weep? When was the last time you mourned and wept over your sin, over your idolatry? When was the last time that your laughter was turned to mourning and your joy to gloom? I confess that sometimes I've got together with old friends and we kind of celebrate, you know, remember when we did this and when we did that? That's wrong. That's a wrong heart. So we need to humble ourselves, be wretched, mourn, and weep. We need to own our junk. We need to own our stuff to the point that we mourn and weep over it. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We have to come low, and that's what it looks like, wretched, mourning, weeping, gloom, and then he will exalt us. That's expelling all pride and putting ourselves in the right place and actually acknowledging in an emotional way that we need a Savior. We need a Lord. It goes on in verse 11. Do, you, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. It's talking about God. But who are you? But but who are you to judge your neighbor? So this is not coming alongside of someone that you love and they know you and trust you, and maybe they're a Christian brother or sister, and you're just speaking truth and love into their lives by saying, Hey man, I see this in your life and it's not quite right. And so you're you're making a judgment about their behavior or what they're giving themselves to in context of, I love you. God has something better for you. Now, this is talking about being the judge at the end of verse 11. You, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And being the judge, when we make ourselves judge, we take a self-centered position that centers all our arguments and anger. And when someone in our kingdom interrupts our law, someone's not going to have a good day. This is God's word to us today. So number three, the origins of war and desires in the kingdom of the heart. We're going to talk about a lot of the kingdom of the heart. And so another word that Paul Tripp uses, I love, it's called self-sovereigns. And sometimes we are self-sovereigns. And let me be sarcastic some more. Self-sovereign people, all of us at some level, I'll say, uh, we want to live in a world where we get all the grace and mercy and everybody else gets all the justice. We want to live in a world where at work, we don't have to worry about insurance premiums going up. We don't have to worry about the boss getting on us. We don't have to worry about people backstabbing us. We want to live in a world where we know that the bonus check is coming. We want to live in a world where, where work is not actually work. It just all goes our way and points to us. That's self-sovereign. 
We want to live in a world when we're driving home from work and it's rush hour that on I-17 there's three aisles, three lanes that are all clogged up. There's the, the HOV lane that's moving a little bit faster, but then there's the Scott lane and that's the one I want to drive in. We want to live in a world when we go to the grocery store that everything's on sale that we want. Everything's in stock that we want. And we gather everything that we want and need that fills our passions. And when we get in line, when I bring my nine items to the line, we either want to be first or we want the line to be short. And the guy in front of me better not have 11 items in a 10-item line. It's breaking the law. We're self-sovereigns and we live in that way at some extent. We want to get home. We want to be greeted. We want our wives to think that we're a, a cross between Don Juan and William Wallace, right? We're just all of it, all that in a bag of chips. We want, we want things to go our way. We don't want to be handed, can you talk to the kids? The trash needs to go out. The dog stuff needs to be picked up. The lawn needs to be mowed. We don't want to be handed that stuff. We want to be self-sovereign. We want our kids to get good grades all the time. We want them to bathe regularly. We want them to laugh at our jokes all the time. We're self-sovereigns. Right. So it might not be that bad, but at some level, sometimes we have that attitude. And if we're not gospel-centered, at some level, every exchange that we have with someone or something is an effort to fill our own desires putting our law on others to acquire our own peace and our own little kingdom of self, even at the expense of others. And so you might say, and it's true, that we're not that bad, but maybe not. But in, uh, we need to learn to look at our emotional dashboards. So legs, are there some red lights blinking? Is the tank a little bit low? Are you running on emotional fumes? Have they turned into bad emotions? Do you need to check under the hood to see what's going on inside? and really do a self-evaluation of what's going on. Because even if only a fraction of my agenda is what I've described, I am still keeping God from taking full residence on the throne of my heart, and you can be sure that anger, anger will find its way into my little bag of tricks for me to get what I want. But it won't work. It won't work. It might work for a really short period of time, but eventually it won't work. So there's some demographics in the kingdom of the heart, and I want to talk about three things. First, in the kingdom of the heart, there's, this is the unhealthy kingdom, by the way. It's uh, our wants. These are our pleasures that we talked about. They're make, they're what makes us feel good, but it's not what makes us good. They may make us feel good for a time, but they have a limit. But we, if, we've, if we've given them some residency in our heart, they're going to fall short. They're going to end up disappointing us. And really what they're going to do is they're going to make us adulterous enemies of God, like it says in verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5. Then in the kingdom of our self-centered hearts, there's our law. When the kingdom that rules in our hearts is shrunk to self, we establish a self-seeking law. And one of two things are usually true. Either we are God, we think that we're God, or we have a bumper sticker on our car that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. He's just there in case I need him. He's there to support. I'm the leader. I'm the one driving. And if I happen to need him, then Jesus is not our co-pilot. Jesus is the giver and sustainer and redeemer of life. Every breath that we take, every heartbeat in our chest comes through his 
sacrifice and mercy and grace. But when, we, when our law is broken in the self-sovereign heart, we become self-avenging vigilantes, punishing those around us, and in doing so, we become lawbreakers ourselves. That's what it says in verses 11 and 12. And then the last thing in our kingdoms is our subjects. These are those that we give the privilege of living in our kingdom. This entire passage is polluted with broken relationships. There's just double-mindedness on an internal basis that we don't even get along with ourselves. And then we go outside and we war and murder and fight and quarrel. There's broken relationships horizontally. But then also we have a bad relationship with God because we've made him an enemy. We've made ourselves his enemy. And so there's broken relationships this way and this way, vertically and horizontally. And so... <clears throat> Our self-sovereign kingdom demands that our subjects serve us and worship us as king or queen. And we don't typically walk around saying so, but in a bad moment of frustration and anger, we might be acting like there are those in our lives that were created to serve us. That's, that's unhealthy dependency. That's a misplaced dependency. It looks like something else in another way. Any, another kind of potentially unhealthy dependency is of those we look to for significance in an unhealthy way. If our self-esteem, our self-worth, or significance is dashed because someone doesn't value us the way we think they should, we may be saying, I am the king or queen, and I deserve to be worshiped. And without the right perspective in here, the gospel perspective, when the people in our lives worship other gods, we're going to get jealous. We're going to get angry. We're not God. That's what we have to remember. And you have to, re you have to re realize what I'm not saying also. We have to have relationships. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not talking about marriage. It's talking about relationship with everybody. And so we have parents, right? There's a, a, there are shoulds in parenting. They should provide us, should love us, should encourage us, should nurture us, should discipline us, should love us. Friends, they should help carry our burdens. They should pray with us. They should tell us the truth in love. There's an appropriateness of, of relationships at work. You know, you should, you, should, you should get accolades for those things that you've that you done, that you've achieved. You should be compensated for your work. So what I'm saying is that there should be definitions and appropriate shoulds in those kinds of relationships. It's never okay for anybody to mistreat you, to abuse you, to steal from you, rip you off. A parent should not be abandoning. Spouses should not be abandoning you. Those are bad things. But the bottom line that I'm trying to get to is no one on earth was created to serve you as Lord and Savior. Nor does anyone hold your identity in their hands. Nor should you hold anyone's identity in your hands. It's too heavy a weight to bear. A gospel perspective does something in our hearts. Our, a gospel perspective will allow us to be served without being Lord. A gospel perspective in our hearts will allow us to serve without being lorded over. You don't need to be manipulated. 
You've got to do it for the right reasons. So without this attitude, our desires go bad. And there's a progression to that that I want to talk about. This is one of those things, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. This is an in-the-moment emotional intelligence test that you could learn. And if you learn this, you're going to understand when good desires go bad and you're going to learn to turn to Christ, the true Lord and Savior, and catch yourselves before it goes really bad. So here's the progression of good desires gone bad. It begins with an internal battle. I want... I want that thing, I want that position, I want to be in relationship with that person, I want that house, I want whatever it is. So it's an open-handed desire, but it's internal. But if you start ruminating over it and start giving it residence in your heart, I want is going to turn into I must. And I must is not an uh, open-handed desire, it's a closed-handed demand. I must have that. It's starting to take residence in your heart. I want turns into I must, and then I must turns into I will have. A statement of survival, a need. And, and so that's when the internal struggle turns into, uh, moves to an external battle and manipulation to get what you want. And so when it's turned externally, I want turns into I must have, turns into I, I will, turns into you should. The people in your lives, you're going to put demands on them so you get what you want. You see the manipulation? So it turns into this expectation. So I want turns into I must have. I must have turns into I will. You should. And if you, if you don't, if you didn't, there's going to be punishment. There's disappointment, and then I'm going to punish you. So it goes through the progression. You should turns into you didn't, therefore I will. You see how good desires go bad in a relational way? It's an external effort to solve an internal problem of a self-sovereign heart. We have to understand to recognize that progression in us. And when people call us on things and say, hey, what's, what's going on? We need to do a self-check and not lash out. Get a hold of our good emotions gone bad. So these are, again, tools to be students of ourselves. I have a self-awareness problem. Do you? I think we all do sometimes. We don't look at the dashboard very often. So number five is uh, another, another tool. Is, uh, it's what happens when uh, someone breaks my law. These are telltale signs of a self-sovereign attitude. The first thing we do is we personalize what's not personal. You know, be driving in traffic and someone cuts you off or they steal your parking space in the parking lot. Don't they know I'm so much more important than they are? Don't they know I have things to do that are more important than they are doing? I am a pastor. (laughs) We put ourselves up there. And we shouldn't, like the coffee shop thing. Guy at the back of the line, the line wasn't there to tick him off. It's a coffee line. Zip it, Sporty Spice. (laughs) Number two is you turn God-given moments of ministry into moments of anger. Remember our our analogy with the kids and the parent? Sometimes we miss moments of ministry because we jump to moments of anger like that. Number three, you'll be adversarial in, in response to perceived offenses. Maybe you're carrying around some bitterness from a hard day at work or, you know, something that someone's 
done something to you or an injustice of some kind and, and internally you really haven't connected the dots of what's going on inside of you and someone may come up to you and say, wow, you look nice today. What, I can't dress myself yesterday? <laughs> no, 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 the whole thing. I like the, you know, the salt and pepper look. And, oh, so now I'm too old and I can't dress myself. We... <laughs> We get adversarial in our responses to perceived offenses, but it's a perception, so we need to get a hold of and know what's going on inside. And number four, you will settle for quick situational solutions that don't get to the heart of what is really going on. Anger is one of the quickest ways to resolve a problem, but it's one of the worst ways to resolve a problem if you're not good and angry. And so we need to not resolve anger through taking control, uh, not resolve issues by taking uh, control by anger or avoiding people or shutting people down. When we do that, we're, 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 just, we're just doing what it says here. We're, we're settling for quick situational solutions so that you'll be okay and, and you can move on to your own little kingdom. And when we, when we don't talk to people, when we give them the cold shoulder, we're actually treating them like they're dead. Don't do that. <clears throat> is there a place for anger in our lives as Christians? Yeah, there is. Because you ought to be angry when, when you see the sin around you, when you see the sin inside of you. You ought to be angry about that. You ought to be angry if someone hurts a loved one. You ought to be angry if someone is being unjust and ripping you off or ripping a loved one off or ripping a business off or the church, the things that we see on the news. We ought to be angry about those things. Is that godly? Yes. Because number six, God is constantly angry because he's constantly loving. He's constantly angry because he's constantly loving. He hates the sin in us and around us. He hates when his mercies are new every morning. So is sin 24-7. He hates that the way of the world is like a factory that produces widows and orphans in a perpetual cycle of brokenness every day of the week, every day of the year. If he were not angry all the time about all those things that are going on, he would not be a loving God. His righteous anger demands a price to be paid for all that. But he gives more grace. Although he is furiously angry at our sinfulness, he holds no ill will towards us. Why? Because of Christ, because of the cross, because he loves us. It is on the cross that the collision of God's holy anger and the anger of man exploded into the beautiful victory of redemption. Man's anger is our demise, but God's anger is the hope of the universe. Here's a good question to ask in your moments of anger and my moments of anger is, can my wrath do anything for the fall of man? Can my anger do anything for my own fallenness? No, it just shows that I am fallen, right? Scripture says that man's anger is filthy and rampant wickedness. It says that in James chapter 1, verses 20, 21. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, you always have to ask what the therefore is there for. And it's therefore because it gives us an alternative Righteous anger doesn't produce the, uh, uh, man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive, it's a gift, 
with meekness the implanted word, that's the gospel, which is able to save your souls. It's amazing. Another thing is, even though my self-centered anger is wrong, it tells me that I have a longing. It may be misguided, but I believe our dissatisfaction is placed in our hearts by God. Let me ask you some questions. Do you want the perfect kingdom? Of course you do. We all do. We might show it in unhealthy ways, but we want that. It's placed there by God. Do you want comfort? Of course you do. Do you want the earth around you to be right? Of course you do. Do you want to be satisfied? Of course you do. We all do. These are things that God has placed in our hearts. We just go after them in the wrong ways. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us the right way to go after those things. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are those who live in the reality that they are spiritually bankrupt apart from Christ. What does it say about the poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's your kingdom. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. These are those who are broken over the loss of their right standing before a holy God because of their own choices. Those who mourn, what does it say? For they shall be comforted. There's your comfort. Blessed are the meek. The meek are those that are humble in heart. Meekness is actually power under restraint. These are those that live out a gentle, gospel-centered, life-giving confidence that is produced in them that includes the implanted spiritual truths they hold in verses 3 and 4, that you're poor in spirit, that you're mourning over your wretchedness. When you realize that and understand what Christ has done for you, it says, for they shall inherit the earth. We're co-heirs with Christ. But it takes humility and repentance. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are those who have a constant hunger and thirst for more and more of the endless supply of living water and bread of life only found in Christ. And it says in this scripture that they will be satisfied. There's your kingdom. There's your comfort. There's your earth. There's your satisfaction. It's in Christ. So we need to be wretched and own it, own our junk, humble ourselves before God, and he will exalt us. The cross must shape the way we live, think, and feel and act. The process is difficult. It is a process of grace that takes you places that you wouldn't take yourself and does things in your life that you wouldn't choose to do in yourself the way God chooses to do that in you. The process produced what's called the cruciformed life. The cruciformed life is a life shaped by the cross. And number seven, the cruciformed life is produced by a process of troubling comfort. Troubling comfort. I want to give the example of Paul. He used to be called Saul. You remember his B.C. days before Christ? He was a persecutor of Christian. He hated God. He was purchasing, he was pursuing people of the way they called them, and he was throwing them in jail. He was beating them up. He was, he was ransacking them. And so he was an angry dude. And uh, what did God do? He gave more grace. How did he do that? 
He knocked him off his high horse on his own little kingdom road, and he blinded him. He made him totally dependent in an unfamiliar environment, being cared for the very people he was persecuting. And it was there, a place that he wouldn't take himself and a condition he wouldn't do to himself. It was there that he saw the glory of God and exchanged his anger against God for a life suffering for the advancement of the gospel. It was his cruciformed life. And his attitude changed, and we see his attitude in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And so <clears throat> you have to understand the context that Paul was being, he was being bad-mouthed uh, when he was preaching God's word because there were other teachers in the area that were manipulating God's word and, and saying things to typical people's ears so that they would be liked. It was their, for their own advancement, not for the advancement of the God. It was not God's true gospel. And so Paul says... Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. They're not going to make me lose heart. Is that all you got? This mercy of, of ministry of mercy <clears throat> or this ministry by the mercy of God is, is, the, is the gospel of advancing the gospel, about preaching the gospel. It says, but we have renounced disgraced, underhanded ways. We, we refuse to practice cunning uh, or to uh, tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I am who I am. Paul was homeless, probably disheveled. He suffered a lot. You're a Christian? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? God knocked me off my hard horse. That is my testimony. Once I was blind, but now I see. So, commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled... Even if I speak the truth, it is veiled to those who are perishing. It's veiled to those that don't want to hear it anyways. It's veiled to those that are sending up their own kingdom in their own little heart. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, un of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God is standing right before each and every one of us. We can see him or we don't have to see him. We can be blinded by those idols that we set up in our hearts. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See the face of Jesus Christ on the cross. Then it talks about these jars of clay. <clears throat> but we have these jars of clay, this, this treasure in these jars of clay. The treasure is the gospel. The jars of clay are us. We're fragile. Sometimes we're broken. We're, we're cracked pots, right? Um, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God has to get the glory. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Per perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal bodies. He brings us to places that we don't want to go. So death is at work in us, but life in you. It's the cruciform life. It's a way that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. 
but it's the most wonderful thing ever. It's our salvation. Number eight, being alive in Christ comes through the death of self. The end of our little kingdom of self is the answer to our human anger. We're teaching a a class, uh, Good and Angry, starts tomorrow. If you haven't signed up for it, you can still do so. But Paul Tripp in it tells us uh, three kinds of love, good good anger, uh, three kinds of anger. It's the restorative anger of love. And this restorative anger of love helps me see that I live in a broken world and I long for those broken things and people to be restored again because I know the God of the gospel has restored me. It's the rescuing anger of mercy. This anger of mercy makes me want to be a part of what God is doing to rescue people from the terrible things they experience because I have been rescued by Jesus Christ himself. And it's the advocacy anger of justice. This makes me a tool in God's hand for what is just and right in this fallen world, not according to my role, but to his. And so if we're going to get this, we need to grasp the stark, stark difference between God's holiness, his intention for his perfect creation, and what it is today, the broken, filthy, rampant wickedness that we see today. To see a disparity in those things should make us really, really angry. But it's not that we're angry, it's what we do with our anger. Tripp goes on to say, that our problem is not just that we are angry. Our problem is that we are angry in all the wrong places for all the wrong reasons. God calls us to be an angry, sad, and dissatisfied people who live in love, who live in mercy, who live in justice, and who alter their surroundings because we care more about the broken world around us than we do about how pleased we are today. God does not want you to be unangry. He wants you to be good and angry. When we are like God, we will be angry at the damage sin does, to, does daily to people and to God's creation. It is then we will stop acting out the destructive anger of our sinfulness and begin acting out, acting out the construct, constructive anger of worship. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, your grace is amazing. We know that more so when we consider ourselves and our sinfulness. And God, we ask you, we beg you to cleanse our hands and renew our minds and purify our hearts in a way that our lives will be shaped by the cross. Put a new spirit within us so that we would not be double-minded. Help us to be mindful of our wretchedness and to mourn and weep because of it. Let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. But God, help us to rejoice when we humble ourselves before you. Exalt us with Christ, producing in us the restorative anger of love, the rescuing anger of mercy, and the advocacy anger of justice for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you very much.